Good morning. Still morning. So our sermon text today is going to come from the book of Joel, and we're going to read from chapter 2, verse 16 and 16, verse 15 and 16. Please hear the word of the Lord. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we want to be people who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. We do not stand in the path of sinners, and we do not sit in the seat of scoffers. But it's in your law that we meditate day and night. Father, I pray that you would feed us with your word today, that you would consecrate us by your word. I pray that you would give us a clarity of thought and give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as Pastor Allen emphasized in his sermon on baptism a few weeks ago, we want to view our children as God does. Scripture tells us that they're his children whom he formed in the womb and has entrusted to us. Therefore, we baptize them, we raise them up in the faith, and we trust God's promises along the way. We teach them to pray, we teach them to believe and to trust and obey God's word. We teach them to confess their sins and to receive forgiveness. And we teach them to worship with God's people and develop a love for the church. We are teaching them that this is where they belong. They are part of the Father's household. They will naturally begin to sing with us, confess their sins with us, pray with us, and come to the table with us. So my aim today is to make a biblical case for pedo communion, or what some in our circles would call covenant communion. Pedo communion is the practice of allowing our baptized children to participate in the Lord's Supper without first requiring a personal profession of faith. And I wanted to make a note, the same thing that Alan said before he did his sermon on pedo-baptism, but our church's and denomination's policy is to honor the convictions of each family in terms of when their children receive baptism and communion. However, the conviction of the elders at King's is that the Bible teaches inclusion of children born to believing parents to both baptism and communion. We know that a number of families in our congregation are prayerfully studying these issues in the Bible. And so we want to take this opportunity, that sermon and then this one as well, to help in that process by setting forth what we believe the Bible teaches. So we don't do this out of superstition. We don't believe that there's any magic in the elements when the child partakes. We believe that children in the Lord's household come to the table the same way they naturally come to the family meal at home. We simply include them at the table and are telling them, this is where you belong. You're a full member of this household. So I could say it this way. We believe that the table of the Lord belongs to the family of the Lord, and the family of the Lord includes believers and their children. 
The three questions I'd like to address today in the sermon is, first, what does the Old Testament say about children participating in worship? Second, does that status of children change when we come to the New Testament? And then third, we'll wrap it up by looking at Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see whether that prohibits children from participating in the Lord's Supper. Now, before I get started, I've read, I read a lot on this subject over the past four or five weeks, and there's a lot of passages in the Bible that I could go to to teach on. Um, we're going to do a, the best survey we can of the Old Testament. I'm going to look at the scripture passages that I think are the most relevant. You're probably going to sit back and think, oh, I wish he would have talked about this. Right? And there's some things that I wish I could actually add into this. I just won't have time to do it. But I am going to look at what I think is the major issues in regards um, to this doctrine. So what does the Old Testament say about children participating in worship? I'll show my cards early. Every single passage in the entire Bible that mentions or discusses children speaks of them as included in whatever religious event is under consideration. When discussing the issue of paedo-communion, arguments in the Old Testament tend to zero in on the story of the Passover in Exodus 12. So it kind of goes something like this. Paedo-communionists will say that children partook of the Passover in Exodus 12. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant fulfillment of the Passover. Therefore, children should be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Anti-paedo-communionists will say that children weren't allowed to eat the Passover until they were old enough to be able to understand it and discuss the meaning of it. But prior to looking at Exodus 12, I'd like to take a brief glance at how worship and the inclusion of children is actually the central theme in the entire Exodus narrative leading up to that. So, in Exodus 3.18, which I believe is in, is in your notes, God sends Moses to Pharaoh with one demand. He says, Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So Pharaoh is to be told to allow the Israelites to go on a three-day journey to worship God in the wilderness. This demand is repeated to Pharaoh several times as we read through the book of Exodus, although Moses doesn't continue to say please. Right? He starts out here saying please. While the word feast is actually used interchangeably with the word sacrifice as you go forward, you'll see this in chapter 5. You'll see it again in chapter 8. Um, I'm going to actually jump all the way forward to chapter 10. Because as the plagues take their toll on Egypt, Pharaoh begins to relent. But then, at that point, the issue precisely becomes the presence of children at the feast. So I want you to hear this in uh, chapter 10, verse 7 through 11. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, 
We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Moses and Aaron are forced to leave, and the plagues continue. But clearly, Yahweh had called his people to a feast to worship him, and he expected the children to participate. And this is what leads us up to the Passover narrative in in Exodus chapter 12. I wish I could read the whole passage. Um, Like I said, I'm going through this as quickly as I can, so we're just going to read verse 3 and 4. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So one was to take a lamb for each household, according to how many people were in the household. And remember, Moses had been telling Pharaoh that the children must be included in the coming sacrificial meal. There would be no reason for parents to exclude children who were able to eat solid food from this meal. The idea that children were served something else, which is what some people will say, while only adults or even only men partook of the Passover, has no support whatsoever in the Exodus narrative. A natural reading of the passage presents it as if this would have been the family meal before their journey to the Red Sea and then on into the wilderness. And it should be remembered, don't forget this either, that the whole purpose of the original Passover was to spare the firstborn sons of Israel. The expectation of children participating in the feasts is right there in the Exodus narrative, and it carries on as we go throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at Deuteronomy 12, which is a summary or the general instructions for all the feasts, or at least for the major three feasts of the Israelites' worship. Um, These three feasts that the Israelites were required to attend every year were um, Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, which we also call Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And these instructions, like I said, apply to all three. Um, In Deuteronomy 12, verse 7, it says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. In verse 12, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters. Let's jump on down to verse 18. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter. It goes on to say your servants, the Levite who is within your gates, and you all shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Again, this is a summary of the major three sacramental meals in Israel, and it implicitly includes the children. Moreover, instructions on the feast in Deuteronomy 12 
end with a generational emphasis as we get to verse 28. It says, Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. When you do what is good and is right in the sight of the Lord your God. We know this, but the clear teaching of Scripture is that we're passing our faith down from one generation to the next so that it will become well with the next generation. The Israelite worshiper was to include his children in order to pass down the faith. By bringing their children to the feast, they were, this, was, this was an act of faith in God's promises. So we move on to Joel chapter 2. And we see, I wanted to include this in here, and this is our sermon text today. But we see in Joel chapter 2 that the kids are called also to a fast. right? So it's not just to a feast. We also have a fast here. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. So he says... Call a sacred assembly. Who's supposed to come? The children and the nursing babes. Right? The kids are at the sacrifices. They're feasting and they're fasting. There's never a time when the Bible mentions and speaks of them as being excluded from congregational worship or from a religious meal. A practical application of this is in Samuel. So if we look in 1 Samuel, we probably, some of us know that story well, And it's mostly focused on Hannah, who is barren, without child. Um, God miraculously gives her Samuel, and she dedicates Samuel back to the temple, who ends up being the prophet that anoints David as king. But what gets missed here sometimes is how faithful Elkanah is at the first of this passage. So in verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. So each year, Elkanah would visit the tabernacle at Shiloh and make a sacrifice. Based off the fact that he and his family are eating the sacrifice, we know that this was a peace offering. Most sacrifices in the Old Testament weren't eaten by the worshipers, but the peace offering was meant to be eaten. You had a portion of the animal that was brought to the altar and burned, given to God, and then the rest was given back to the worshiper to be eaten. The picture we have here is literally sitting down at a table with the Lord. We're eating a meal. The the worshiper would have been eating a meal with the Lord. And it's clear here that his sons and daughters are participating in that meal. As far as we can see in any of these texts in the Old Testament, there was no requirement for confirmation, no requirement for a personal profession of faith, no expectation of a heightened intellectual understanding of the peace offering in order for sons and daughters to eat the sacrifice with their family. The only implication we can make is that they were old enough to eat solid foods. Every single passage in the Old Testament that mentions or discusses children speaks of them as being included in whatever religious event is under consideration. And additionally, 
There's no passage anywhere in the Old Testament that requires children to go through some ritual before they're included at a religious meal. I wrote that in my notes, and then I thought about it this morning. There actually is, um, because when a family, a, a husband, wife, or kids would have touched something unclean, say the day before a religious meal, um, a dead body or, or something else unclean, they had to go through a baptism, right? They actually had to be baptized in order to come to the meal. Um, James Jordan points this out in his lectures on Pado communion which is like six hours worth. But he points out that, you know, baptism was a ticket to the mill for an unclean um, Israelite. So um, let's move on. So we'll look at the New Testament. So does the status of children change in the New Testament? I'll show my cards again. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Christians' children are still included. In Paul's letters to the churches, this doesn't get noticed a lot of times, but he assumes the, the inclusion of children in the body. He starts out Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 1, and he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then as we move down to chapter 6, and he's addressing all of the different groups of faithful saints in Christ Jesus, he addresses the children. Right? Directly to the children in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment given with promise, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So speaking directly to the children implies that the children were to be included in the congregation of the new covenant. This isn't the only letter in which Paul does that. But on top of that, I think there's another key here in this verse which helps us understand the story of the whole Bible. Paul is directly quoting the fifth commandment from Exodus 20. But he changes the word land at the end of the passage, at the end of the commandment, to the word earth. Now, why does Paul take the liberty to do that? He just takes the, the, the commandment from the Old Testament, said land. He, he repeats it in the New Testament, and he changes it to the word earth. But the immediate promise, if we go back to Exodus 20, the immediate promise to the people of Israel was that it would go well with them in the land that the Lord their God was giving them. Right? This was before they went into the land of Canaan. The promise was, it will go well with you in the land of Canaan if you will obey my commandments. But Paul recognized that this promise now includes the whole earth. It now includes families all over the earth. And the whole arc of redemption, if we, if we recognize this, the whole arc of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament is from the lesser to the greater, right? It's from the land of Canaan to the whole earth. Um, in Daniel, we see this when Christ comes, it's a small rock that becomes a mountain, right? We see um, leaven that leavens the entire lump. We see a mustard seed, which becomes a tree that ends up covering the whole earth. And if you miss this in Scripture, you really do miss the narrative. It's, if you miss this in Scripture, I would say you miss the story of the Bible. And um, let's see. So neglecting the children, neglecting the table from the children, 
turns this narrative of Scripture on its head, right? So what we're doing is we're going from more to less at the feast, whereas Scripture plainly tells us that even the feasts were no exception in the principle of lesser to greater. And Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 13. When Jesus is telling the story of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, he describes it as a table feast in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are already sitting at. And then we get to Luke chapter 13, verse 29, which I think is in your notes. And it says, They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down, literally recline at the table, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. The bottom line here is that the table is less exclusive in the New Testament than it was in the Old. Why would we all of a sudden, if the table is less exclusive in the New Testament, we all agree that the gospel now goes out all over the earth, why would we all of a sudden exclude younger children when they know we know that they were previously included? And apparently, Jesus had to also reprimand the disciples for this same error. Because if we go on down to Luke chapter 18, in verse 15, it says, Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Even though infants are brought to Christ, which means they're likely small enough that they can't come to him on their own, notice here that Jesus still describes them as coming to him. But what I want to do here is let's look at what Jesus does not say. Do not forbid them once they've made a credible profession of faith. No, doesn't say that. Do not forbid them once they've went through confirmation. Do not forbid them once they have the intellectual capacity to remember and reflect upon my cross. He simply says, let the children, let the infants come to me because they belong in my kingdom. It would have been no surprise then to the Jews being saved in Acts chapter 2 when Peter said that the promise of the Holy Spirit was for them and their children. He says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What I'm wanting to show here is that the New Testament presents us with a consistent view of covenant children. They're included in the kingdom of God. They're members of his household. They were members of the household in Ephesus. And children of believers all over the earth are now being grafted in as members of the church and are recipients of the new covenant promises. So with all of this in mind, I want to turn to the argument in 1 Corinthians 11. And like I said, this is the only argument. So from from people who baptize their babies, this is the only argument against paedo-communion. Every other argument is actually built off of their interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look at verse 28 to start. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner 
eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So the argument is this. Young children do not have the intellectual or emotional capacity to examine themselves or discern the body, discern the body which makes them ineligible to participate in the sacramental meal. I'll say that again. Young children do not have the intellectual or emotional capacity to examine themselves or discern the body, which makes them ineligible to participate in the sacramental meal. But this argument begs the question, right? If you read 1 Corinthians, which we will in a second, 1 Corinthians 11, was Paul's intent to tell the Corinthians to quit bringing their kids to the table? Who is it that needs to examine themselves in this passage? Who is it that's not discerning the Lord's body? And is there a clue in this passage to who it is that's eating in an unworthy manner? I would say, yes, there is. But in order to answer these questions, I'd like to start by reading a bigger chunk of this, of 1 Corinthians 11. Um, We're going to read from verse 17 through verse 22, and then I'll pick it up in verse 27 till the end of the passage. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned by the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So this is definitely a powerful passage when it comes to our understanding of communion. But before diving into the problems and answering these questions I talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, we need to look at the broader context of the letter. If you guys have read 1 Corinthians recently, to put it mildly, it seems like the church is a bit of a mess. There was quarreling. There were cliques forming over who their favorite theologian was. You had a man sleeping with his father's wife. Lawsuits were being filed against fellow congregants. You had husbands and wives neglecting one another. The poor were being looked down on by the rich. You had spiritual gifts that were being turned into pride. 
And added to that, we just read here that the communion table is being treated more like a, an all-you-can-eat buffet line for the drunks and the, and the people who are hungry. So in regard to the broader context of the letter, this is actually what Paul is dealing with in, in the table. And a key to understanding that, you have to go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When he starts the letter, Paul says in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the word fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia. You guys have probably heard that before. It's also the word translated as communion later on in 1 Corinthians. But when we see this word, we don't really have a a good one single English word to uh, give us an understanding of koinonia. When we see this word, it infers participation, right? So we could look at this verse, chapter 1, verse 9, and we could say participating in one another, participating with one another in Christ. Or you could say to serve Christ in fellowship with one another. So the unity of the koinonia becomes front and center in this letter to the Corinthians. And as we move on, we see this in Paul's recurring criticisms of the divisions within the church. In verse 10, the very next verse, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Moving on to chapter 3, verse 3. These passages like this are all through the letter. I'm just picking a few. Verse 3 in chapter 3. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, another thing that Paul does as we're going through 1 Corinthians is he actually states the solution to this problem several times. I think it's very summarized well in chapter 10, verse 24. He says, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So preferring one another above yourself is the answer in this problem of division or in this lack of unity. And this call to koinonia is also the background of the popular exhortation to consider the whole body in Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the the body is not one member, but many. So there's no doubt that Paul's central concern in the letter to the Corinthians is that the divisions of the church are destroying the unity of the church. And this central concern finds special focus whenever he gets to the instructions for the Lord's Supper, which is literally the koinonia, the communion, the communion meal or the communal participation of the church. 
And we see this right off the bat in verse 18 in that chapter 11. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Moving on down. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? No, I do not praise you. And he finishes the passage. Remember the verse I just read in chapter 10. Paul actually finishes this passage with the solution to that division. And it's real similar to that verse. In verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's the solution. Wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. One thing to note here, even the solution for the adults that are improperly feasting is not to stop coming to the table, right? That's not a solution that Paul even gives us here. Out of all the problems in Corinth, the only person that Paul told the church to excommunicate was the man sleeping with his father's wife back in chapter 5. Everyone else, as far as we can tell from reading the letter, Everyone else is expected to keep coming to the table just to do it differently than what they were before. So the answer to the problem at the Lord's Supper is to wait for one another. Make sure you're including everyone. Quit gorging yourself at the table. And in this context, the man who needs to examine himself is the one who's causing the divisions in the body. The body he's supposed to be discerning are the people of God that he's eating with. The corporate body of Christ, the church. The discernment of the body actually ends up becoming the main problem with the whole letter, right? When we're talking about divisions. Not the historical body of Christ, right? But the corporate body of Christ. Paul is calling the corporate body of Christ to a worthy koinonia in Christ. This passage has absolutely nothing to do with forbidding children who are full covenant members to participate in communion. Paul is not even addressing the general qualifications for participation in the supper. That's not what this passage is about. He's specifically addressing the abuses that were going on in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 11 is not demanding some sort of intellectual capacity before participation and it's not threatening judgment on the congregation because they're bringing kids to the table a matter of fact we could look at it the other way the very practice of excluding covenant members from the table creates a division to what paul warns about in first corinthians 11 so let me close by just summarizing my argument first As far as scripture ever speaks to the issue, it always includes children in the worship and the meals of the church. Second, this is exactly what we would expect given the fact that God works generationally and our children belong to him. He uses this to teach them. Third, 
The New Testament presents us with a consistent view of children. Children are included in the kingdom of God and kingdom privileges. They're fully included as members of the church, and they are recipients of the covenant promises. 1 Corinthians 11 does not overturn all of this and put some new requirement on children. But in fact, it supports the practice of including our children at the table. The table of the Lord belongs to the family of the Lord, and the family of the Lord includes believers and their children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that our children children truly are a gift from you, Lord. We thank you that they come directly from your hand that you've given us to teach them and train them and raise them up in the faith. Lord, we pray that you would continue um, to teach us as parents, as fathers and mothers, to teach us, to teach our children. Lord, I pray that we would always look to your word in answers to questions like this. And I pray that we would do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.